One of the biggest continuing storylines in the feed and livestock sector is trade policy and how its twists and turns shift and shape markets for feed ingredients and animal proteins. Headlines on topics from trade wars to trade agreements were a frequent feature of Feedstuff's coverage in 2019, and that looks to continue well into the new year. Welcome to Feedstuff's In Focus, our podcast taking a look at the big issues in the livestock, poultry, grain, and feed industries. I'm your host, Andy Vance. Thanks for joining us. In this episode, we talk with an agricultural economist at the nation's largest farm organization about USMCA, or NAFTA 2.0 if you like to think it that way, including that agreement's impacts in dairy pricing and competition with Canadian dairy producers, as well as a look at the outlook for trade relations with Japan, China, and Korea. This episode of Feedstuffs in Focus is sponsored by Balkim Animal Nutrition and Health. Focused on advancing nutrition in humans and animals, Balkim has spent the past 50 years researching and perfecting products that increase efficiency and productivity, such as Reassure Precision Release Choline and AminoSure XM Precision Release Methionine. To learn more about Balkim and their products, visit balkimanh.com. Veronica Nye is an economist at the American Farm Bureau Federation, focused on a variety of issues in the agricultural economy. With the calendar turning to a new year, she reflected on the challenges feed and livestock producers faced last year and gave her look ahead for movement on some key trade policy issues in 2020. With more, here's Feedstuff's policy editor, Jackie Fatka. Taking a look back at 2019 and also looking forward, we saw a lot of angst and uncertainty when it came to some trade relationships in 2019 and we did see some of those settled and so as we look forward to 2020 we're going to get a little bit of insight from her about where we might be going with some of those and some some opportunities for maybe driving some increased profits or at least taking out some of that uncertainty in the market. So Veronica thanks so much for taking the time to talk today. Ah, My pleasure always happy to join you. Well, let's just start, uh, as you look at 2019, uh, what was maybe some of the, the biggest trade deals that we were able to finalize uh, as it pertains to benefiting the agriculture industry? Well, you know, as you mentioned, 2019 was a big year for trade. Um, and, you know, the big story for um, most of our major markets was uncertainty uh, as to how the relationship was going to progress. So, you know, you, you think about what our, you know, top five or six um, markets are, and we had open negotiations with most of them. So Canada and, and Mexico, um, you know, typically that's our uh, first and, and third largest markets. Um, certainly seeing the NAFTA spread its, its <laughs> wings and become uh, the butterfly that is USMCA at the end of 2019 is, is significant um, and uh, will really help us um, moving forward um, to to make sure that we're all um, you know on the on the same page and and that that deal is is not in jeopardy. That's almost a third of our ag exports is to Canada and Mexico, so that was a big deal. Um, and then of course um, thinking about Japan and the you know that's a significant um, and usually the the third or fourth largest market for for U.S. ag exports. Uh, reaching an agreement on that uh, towards the end of 2019 also is helpful. Um, and then, of course, there's um, one that we oftentimes 
forget about because it happened so quickly and um, without much fanfare what was the renegotiation of the chorus agreement with South Korea, which is typically, you know, in our, our top five or our sixth largest market. Um, so, you know, those all reached a, you know, a happy uh, conclusion in, in 2019. Uh, I know USMCA, we have to put a bow on that deal in 2020, but the fact that it passed out of the house in the U.S. is, is obviously a, a big deal. Uh, and then you kind of look to those markets in the top five or six that are still a bit more unsettled. Uh, China, of course, is, has taken up justifiably a lot of time and attention. Um, and so still looking forward to, um, you know, some something some fruitful conclusion to all the negotiations in, in 2020 uh, and then of course with the EU uh, our our friend and oftentimes uh, frustrating trade partner uh, some progress there but uh, a lot of work uh, yet remains with that important market so you know overall 2019 um, ended on a on a, a pretty positive note um, after a year of, of quite a lot of uncertainty uh, let's dig into each one of those. And when it, a lot of times with agriculture, it is a, it's a margin of pennies for producers. And so any little bit of increased market access or increased export opportunities can make the difference in, in red or black for producers. So let's start with USMCA. Obviously, we were already at zero tariff lines for a lot of those markets, but uh, we did see a little bit of increased market access. Um, but our, is there a big needle mover there or could some of those SPS issues, those um, phytosanitary uh, or regulatory changes or even a harmonization when it comes to biotech, um, are those some opportunities for increased profit for U.S. farmers? Well, you know, as as you mentioned, uh, you know, this this deal um, really just improves. I would say it takes an, a deal that was an A minus up to an A from, from NAFTA to USMCA. Um, but Certainly, uh, modernizing the rules under which we trade will be a big deal for for U.S. agriculture. As you mentioned, the the rules around biotechnology uh, will carry those those provisions forward um, into into future agreements. And you know, it, it uh, it's a good uh, marker, if you will, for moving forward to say, hey, no, we do have a major agreement uh, with countries that both grow and import. Um, you know, by crops grown using biotechnology, we have a major agreement there, and that that gives us more legs to stand on when we're uh, looking at agreements with with other countries and and trying to put forward good rules. I, you know, on the dairy side, certainly once we get um, this deal finally executed, it will eliminate class seven pricing uh, in in the Canadian uh, system, which is a big deal. Uh, and you know, that's. That's probably the biggest win for for the dairy sector, frankly, is that it uh, will eliminate that uh, comp that unnatural competition that the Canadian government was creating uh, between its dairy sector and, and the U.S. Uh, you know, it's one thing to have free trade between the two countries, but it uh, the rules of of USMCA certainly uh, will uh, prohibit Canada from. Uh, creating, you know, basically a government uh, subsidized and, and created industry uh, that the U.S. was having to c compete with around around the world, not just in Canada and Mexico. So that's that's a big deal, um, you know. It, and and the big thing uh, with I think with this deal is that over the last several years, 
uh, both during the election uh, cycle back in 2016, if we can all remember that long ago, um, and through the last several years, uh, you know, the threat of losing NAFTA was, you know, I think very real at, at certain junctures, and that would certainly have uh, stimmied some investment both in the U.S., Canada, and Mexico um, among the three partners. You know, if I'm if I think that that agreement might be uh, going away, or I don't know the rules uh, between the trade of the, in the three countries, uh, I'm not going to make investments that I would otherwise make. So we might see some boosts out of the agreement uh, signing simply from the fact that it re-solidifies the relationship and gives us, uh, you know, a clear roadmap for the next uh, several years of trade between the three countries. Uh, you know, along the lines of USMCA too, are there specific things, we've talked a lot about that being the blueprint for future trade agreements. So are there specific things that you could see as we move forward with whether it's China or another agreement, a further agreement with Japan, things that were in that original, this, this updated USMCA that could also get replicated in other ones? Yeah, certainly. You know, you look at those, uh, I already mentioned the biotech rules, but um, something else that's important to the dairy trade, which we don't talk about as much, and it's not, frankly, it's not just dairy, it's a lot of processed um, uh, value-add products, are the rules around geographic indicators, which say, hey, I'm um, developing and selling this product, um, and I want to call it um, what it is, uh, yep. for example, like par Parmesan cheese, um, and, you know, some of our, our our friends in the EU has said, oh, you know, Parmesan cheese originated in um, in uh, Parma, Italy. And so, you know, we want to be the only ones who are able to call it Parmesan. And, you know, the U.S. says, hey, yeah, we've been producing this cheese in this style for a very long time. We don't think it's fair that you're able to basically, you know, have a monopoly over that name. Uh, the USMCA set some new rules uh, with regards to geographic indicators. That'll be a big deal for processed products moving forward um, in that it um, it's not just the EU trying, trying to write the rules on geographic indicators. There's other countries around the world, uh, the U.S. included, that, that care about them and have positions, and uh, this, this will certainly uh, help in uh, moving forward. Uh, we also look at things uh, that, are, that aren't so sexy, frankly, but are really important. Things like um, uh, border crossings and what paperwork you need, um, what documentation, and, and how quickly products can, once they reach their destination, how quickly they can get out of port, um, which add a lot of transaction costs to every, uh, to every deal. Um, the USMCA... Uh, certainly set some improved rules there, um, and hopefully we'll be able to carry those forward in, in other deals. So yeah, there's um, you know, there's a, things like making uh, uh, those non-tariff barriers, uh, lessening those non-tariff barriers that add costs, um, those uh, rules of trade, uh, streamlining that those elements uh, certainly can uh, be used in, in further agreements and, you know, as a, as a good indication of uh, where we're headed. So you mentioned dairy as a winner. Who do you see as winners greatest able to capitalize on USMCA from different sectors in the US ag industry? You know, while it is important for the dairy sector, it, probably, um, 
you know, the sectors that are most beneficial are those that have the highest level of integration that had the most to lose. And when you look at that, that's really the beef and the pork sectors. Yep. Um, when you think about the number of, of animals uh, that move from one country to another in order to be processed, uh, you know, how often the, the genetics uh, go from from one side of the, from one country to another, live animals from one country to another, and then finally the, the final uh, meat product. Uh, certainly the, the meat sector had a lot to potentially lose if those rules um, and, and the integration that they had come to rely on through NAFTA if that were lost. So I think that's a big deal. Um, you know, if you look outside of, of the U.S., um, certainly the the Mexican produce sector had a lot to lose if NAFTA uh, or USMCA uh, didn't happen. Uh, we do a lot of seasonal trade and, and fruits and vegetables between the three countries. Uh, so that sector would have would have certainly been hindered if if things had had changed dramatically uh, so you know it's um again it's it's not so much the additional market access uh but the ability to trade those products in a more streamlined manner and to have clear rules moving forward uh, under the agreement is is a big deal for a, for a lot of different sectors but yeah i think the the meat sector uh, and the fruit and vegetable sector certainly stand out there kind of switching gears to japan Everybody was needing something with Japan, especially when we exited from the Trans-Pacific Partnership deal when President Trump first came into office. And so, you know, a lot of those people in agriculture were really looking for something in, in, in that, that arrangement to the, uh, with Japan. Obviously, we didn't get everything we would have had under TPP there. We did get a lot. Uh, where do you see some of the greatest wins in that kind of quick deal? And also, maybe where are some of the shortfalls that we didn't get because we weren't in TPP? Sure. Well, um, you know, I think what we've learned from previous agreements, and again, what we were learning um, from not being in TPP, is how quickly you fall behind when your competitors have agreements in a market that is important to you. So, you know, if several, several years ago, if we go back to the um, U.S. Columbia FTA, which was negotiated and then sat on the shelf for several years before it was passed. But in the meantime, Canada uh, negotiated an agreement with Columbia. And we saw the U.S. almost completely go from the dominant supplier of wheat to, er, to Colombia down to a very minor supplier. And then that you know, and that was in the course of two or three years. Then you, we actually passed the, the Columbia deal. And within, you know, a few years, that market was back for the U.S. Uh, and I think a lot of us were very concerned that that was what we were going to see in Japan. And certainly the early indicators were, you know, on, on a wide variety of products. But again, on the, on the protein side, that the U.S. was quickly losing market share to, um, to Australia. Uh, to the EU. We forget that sometimes the EU is a major exporter of pork. Um, and we were starting to see a deteriorating market share. So the fact that for a vast majority of, of products, uh, the U.S. got basically the same deal that we would have gotten under TPP. Now, certain products got, were left out, uh, that, like rice, that uh, uh, 
that would have gotten access under TPP then and they didn't under the Japan uh, sort of mini bilateral uh, handshake agreement that we've got. Um, so, you know, there there were products that were excluded that wouldn't have been excluded under TPP. Um, and, you know, we spent a lot of time just a few minutes ago talking about the rules of trade, um, and those aren't addressed under, uh, you know, this agreement with this first phase of the Japan deal either. So it's simply, you know, tariff reduction, which is a big deal. Don't get, don't get me wrong. That's, that is significant. Uh, but it wasn't as comprehensive as we w would have seen an agreement, you know, a full uh, free trade agreement or, or a regional trade agreement with Japan. Uh, so that's certainly what we'll look for here in the next uh, year, um, as the the White House has already pledged that within the next four months we'll they'll begin talking about phase two uh, with with Japan, um, and that would be to include the entirety of the uh, the U.S. economy, not just agriculture, and that the even the entirety of agriculture be included in in phase two, including those products that were left out and all of those important rules. Uh, setting elements that that were left out of the the first round. Similar question that I asked before: Are there certain sectors that stand to benefit from this quick deal with with Japan? Obviously, a lot of those tariff lines coming down and, and making a, a more competitive level playing field for U.S. producers is important. Uh, you know, beef is one that obviously going from thirty eight. 0.5% down to eventually 9% could help increase a very strong market there. What are some of the markets that you see as potential to, to grow, increase opportunities there in Japan because of this new tariff rate schedule? Well, you know, I think the, you know, the, the best way to look at this and what products have the most potential is to think about uh, what countries are in the the CPTPP, as it became known after the U.S. exited, um, and uh, you know, and that includes uh, Australia, Brunei, Canada, Chile, uh, Malaysia, Mexico, New Zealand, Peru, Singapore, Vietnam, and of course Japan. Uh, and then think about the fact that uh, Japan has a free trade agreement with the EU. And it, so, if I think if we think about who over, you know, in the last several years, Japan has signed agreements with, and think about what products those countries specialize in, that quickly uh, illuminates uh, what products um, the U.S. Uh, the, the U.S. products have the most potential, right? So, um, Australia and New Zealand are very strong dairy producers. Uh, Australia is also a significant um, beef producer. So, the Japanese buy a lot of, of value-added uh, dairy products, um, and with the U.S. not being in that, you know, not having the same tariff treatment as uh, Australia and New Zealand, and of course also the European Union, that was going to quickly cost us market share. So now we're back in that market. We can compete uh, at the same tariff level as those competitors, um, and as we're all pretty aware, Japan, while it is an important large market, has a relatively high level of tariff on their ag products. So back when we were talking about TPP and we said, hey, this could be a potential $4.4 billion agreement for the U.S., um, and we're t thinking about all those high tariff uh, lines coming down and, oh my goodness, think about when you have that much more disposable income because you're not paying the tariff, how much more product you can buy. 
all of that remains true under this agreement with Japan. So, uh, you know, of course, on on the meat side, on the on the dairy case, that will be incredibly important. Um, we sell a lot of value add um, products that aren't necessarily something that a farmer directly sells, but uh, things like crackers, cookies, cereals, um, you know, consumer ready items that our products are the uh, are the raw material for. That's all very important, um, and uh, having additional access and uh, to to that market will will have downstream impacts on on U.S. farmers as we're providing the inputs for those uh, value-add products. We'll be back with more from Veronica and I in just a moment, including a deeper dive into trade with Korea and ongoing trade tensions with China. Meanwhile, I wanted to tease an upcoming episode. In a few weeks, we'll be sharing some data from Baokim's upcoming mini-symposium on the topic of methyl donor nutrition. The symposium features Drs. Tom Overton and Joe McFadden from Cornell, as well as Dr. Peter Hansen from the University of Florida and Dr. Christine Girard from Agricultural and Agri-Food Canada. The Baokim Mini Symposium event is part of the Florida Ruminant Nutrition Symposium February 3rd in Gainesville. You'll also be able to access the presentations on Baokim's website, baokimanh.com, after the event. Now, back to Feedstuff's policy editor, Jackie Fatka. You mentioned Korea, and that was kind of one that we were at least glad that nothing harmful happened for agriculture. <laughs> uh, everybody, you know, with a lot of the uncertainty, everybody's just been holding their breath in some ways. Uh, what are some, are there, were there any, any updates that we should know about that? Are there, are there future opportunities there to continue to grow that market? You know, um, the ag chapters in the Korea in the chorus agreement weren't touched, um, but what's been really impressive about the uh, the Korea FTA is just how much that market has grown uh, since that agreement was passed. Um, in fact, in 2019, USDA is expecting that Korea, South Korea will import more U.S. ag products by value than China which is incredible if you just think about the relative populations of South Korea versus China. Now, of course, we we know we have a lot of tariff issues going on and trade issues going on with with China, but still, even at their baseline, uh, with all of that going on, we're expected to uh, export, you know, $7 billion worth of ag products to them. So the fact that the, the South Koreans are buying at such high high levels on a per capita basis is, is pretty incredible. Uh, and so certainly when we look at places like China and think about what those those tariffs have, have meant, and um, there was a real possibility that if we hadn't reached an agreement with South Korea, that it could have also gone down that path. So that was another sort of uh, bullet dodged uh, situation. And, you know, we're just going to continue to look forward to growing a market that's naturally um, consuming more as U.S. ag products as that country's um, continues to grow and uh, their consumers have more and more disposable income. And, you know, the, the, the tried and true um, the more wealthy consumers become, the the more U.S. ag products they buy uh, remains true in, in South Korea, and uh, no reason to see that that won't uh, that that'll slow down in the future. 
Uh, obviously, the big question is China and uh, a lot of talk, a lot of uh, unknowns when it comes to what that trade deal will mean. We do see that there's reports that we will have a, a signing by January 15th uh, with you know, between 40 to $50 billion worth of U.S. ag purchases. Uh, any more details that you've gathered on that? Uh, what uh, opportunities exist there for different segments of the U.S. ag industry to help take a piece of those, that big pie, uh, especially as we look at how it compares to previous purchases prior to the trade war with China? Sure. Well, you know, I think um, we're all uh, eager for a, for a signing, um, though, um, you know, folks are sh should continue to remain uh, cautiously optimistic, I think, about that, <laughs> because we've, you know, we've, we've been down this path several times now where we had, it's going to be signed by mid-October, it's going to be signed by mid-November, so uh, while we're certainly looking forward to that, um, you know, I think we we all have to maybe hold our collective breath a little bit that, that we get to the finish line. Um, one thing that I'll mention about China, and while we've thought a lot about China because uh, of its importance to our soybean sector, and we know that such a large share of our exports to, to China have been soybeans. You know, I think it's important to remember that in 2018, uh, the Chinese imported $124 billion worth of U.S. ag products, um, and only about 14 of that came from the United States. So, um, they're importing a lot of product from a lot of different countries, um, and there's a lot of room for the U.S. to, frankly, wrestle some market share or away from some of those other partners. Um, you know, you think about uh, the fact that uh, China's largest, uh, the country they imported the most product from was Brazil, uh, and then, and then the U.S., but then followed not so so far behind uh, the EU, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, uh, Indonesia, Thailand, Argentina, Vietnam, the list goes on. But, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of room for the U.S. to not only, one, return to our level, hopefully, of, of exports of, of soybeans, uh, but also to really mix up the variety of product that we're sending uh, to the Chinese market. So, uh, you know, you look at things like uh, when we were previously exporting, you know, somewhere in the in the realm of $24 billion worth of ag products, and so much of that was soybeans. But at, at that point in time, the Chinese had a ban basically on U.S. poultry products. They had, uh, until recently, a ban on U.S. beef products. Uh, they were importing um, a fairly small portion of their total pork consumption. Um, so, you know, you, you look at 2020 moving forward and how much is in just in those few products, how much of that has changed. Uh, of course, uh, China has had a, a significant and, and, and horrible um, African swine fever uh, disease outbreak that has decimated their pork herd. Uh, and they're looking for imports from all over the globe, the EU, the U.S., can't. Uh, Canada, anybody who's who's growing a, a significant amount of, of pork, uh, the Chinese are are wanting to do business, um, and when you and you think about what that has what that has done to their their pork supply and pork prices, it certainly makes other proteins a lot more um, competitive than maybe they were in the past. So you know you look at 2020 and think 
well, there's certainly a lot more room for USBs than there was before. You look at the fact that they've now lift the ban on U.S. poultry, and my goodness, what that could mean to, to U.S. poultry. Uh, the Chinese, all, they consume everything in large in large quantities, so that certainly has um, a lot of potential for the dairy sector. It has a lot of uh, potential for uh, fresh fruits and vegetables, and and uh, I guess frozen uh, products and juiced products of of those as well. So. Um, there's a there's a lot of potential for a wide variety of, of value add products. Uh, so you know I think when folks look at that forty fifty billion dollars and say we just don't have enough soybeans to send them, I, I think that's maybe the wrong way to look at it and say uh, yes the um, the Chinese market's important on a on a feed basis, uh, but it's also uh, there's a lot of uh, products being consumed there. Uh, of, of a wide variety and, and we can gain some market share for a lot of them. You know, also looking to the other uh, countries there in Southeast Asia, uh, do you see some other opportunities for growth in those, any particular countries or any particular segments of the U.S. ag industry? You know, the over the last, um, let's just I'll say the last decade, where the, a significant amount of growth has has come from, as has been Southeast Asia, um, as those countries continue to develop and uh, again buy a, a wide, wider uh, variety of foods, they expand their diets. It becomes a little bit uh, more uh, fruit, vegetable, and, and protein based rather than uh, than than rice and and some of the other um, you know more starchy uh, products that they had previously dominated their diets. Um, that remains true. That's why the U.S. was interested in TPP, uh, and you know those countries continue to to grow um, at a at a steady uh, pace. Their obviously their GDP growth um, is is growing at a much faster rate than than the U.S. Uh, so you look at folks like Indonesia, Thailand, Vietnam, uh, and there's a lot to be excited about there. Uh, Malaysia. Um, the Philippines. There's there's a lot of countries in Southeast Asia that aren't you know they're they're not the the giant behemoth markets uh, like um, China from you know a population basis and they're not wealthy like the, the Japanese. But uh, there's a when you put them together, there's a lot to be excited about. Uh, you know, I'd also say that uh, the administration that that finally cracks the Indian. Indian market uh, will certainly uh, be heroes. Uh, that's a tough market. It's it's hard to get in there. There's a, a lot of protectionism, uh, but you know you look at uh, estimates that uh, of how fast the, the Indian economy is growing, um, and in just a few years their economy is projected to be larger than Germany's. Um, you know that's that's not insignificant, and at, at some point. Um, that market will crack open. So uh, I, people have been saying that for a, for a long time. Uh, so that's that's something that, that folks have heard before. But uh, you know the fundamentals of what will make India a lucrative um, export destination remain true. Uh, it's more of a you know a waiting game and who can who can finally um, crack crack it open. But uh, a lot to be excited about in the Asian uh, continent and. Uh, and of course elsewhere, but um, that's where, uh, you know, you see a significant amount of 
uh, both a combination of population growth and, and GDP growth that, uh, that should get exporters excited. So as we look to 2020, are there, you mentioned the USMCA going from an A minus to an A. Uh, as you look around the world and, and look for opportunities for U.S. farmers to become a little bit more profitable in the year ahead, uh, where are some opportunities to maybe improve those grades? Are, as you look just kind of the big picture, what, what segments of U.S. agriculture have the most to gain? Uh, whether it is value added through feeding our livestock through the corn and soybeans here domestically, or if it's actually processing ethanol and sending it overseas to, to sell to China, maybe kind of give me an overview of some of those segments that have uh, some uh, positive outlooks for 2020. Well, you know, a lot of that, um, I'm going to give a, a, a real economist answer here. It all depends. Um, you know, it, it really, uh, in large part depends on what what happens uh, with with China and what happens um, with with that agreement, what the Chinese agree to purchase, um, and and sort of how that deal shakes out. Because um, while the Japan deal is is, is significant, um, there's that is a mature market, and there's nothing to suggest that. Um, that their consumption pattern is going to change dramatically from what it currently is. So uh, there's, you know, on, on that, while we want, we will sell some more product and um, it's probably going to be more, but of the same you know, sort of product mix that we have today. Same thing with, uh, with NAFTA, uh, USMCA. That's for the most part, um, you might see a, a little bit of growth, uh, in, in all of the products that, that we're trading, uh, but basically the mix will stay the same. The big asterisk out there is, is China. So um, do they intend to um, to get up, they, they said that they will um, you know, get to that $40 billion. Now, does that mean that uh, that's gonna be completely sort of market-based? And so you see private buyers buying what they want. Um, Sixty percent of the of the GDP in China is driven by uh, private business. So that so that if that's the case, that means uh, you know a certain product mix. Whereas if the Chinese government is a bit more involved and says we really want to um, uh, grow back our reserves of some of these commodities that we've depleted in the trade in the trade war, uh, that that would might mean giant purchases of, of soybeans, uh, of wheat, of uh, things along that line, uh, of pork uh, by the Chinese government. Um, so that's a different outcome. So I think it really will depend uh, on who is leading um, the, the purchases in, in China, uh, because, you know, certain products like the, the dairy and, and the, on the meat side of life, that tends to be uh, more market oriented. Uh, private sector driven. Uh, same thing for fruits and vegetables and and, and those those type of products. Uh, whereas if it's maybe a little bit more government driven, um, the Chinese government says, "Hey, we want to uh, have some sort of a biofuel uh, provision that we're enforcing." Um, they could make that decision and instantly create, uh, you know, significant demand for for U.S. ethanol. 
they could choose to refill the you know their reserves for for feedstuffs. Um, so I, you know, it, it really does depend on kind of how this marches forward. Uh, which sectors of, of the U.S. farm economy uh, will be most likely to to benefit? Very good, a very good economist answer as well. So Veronica <laughs> Nye, uh, economist at, at the American Farm Bureau Federation, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. And we'll continue to follow Jackie's coverage of what's happening with China and check back with her for more in future episodes. Thanks again to Veronica Nye from the American Farm Bureau Federation for her insights and outlook into what the livestock and dairy industry might expect on a variety of trade issues in the days ahead. For more on those issues and related topics in the policy arena, you can read Jackie's reporting in the pages of Feedstuffs and on our website, feedstuffs.com. Thanks to Balkim Animal Nutrition and Health for sponsoring this episode. Remember to register for the upcoming Florida Ruminant Nutrition Symposium held in Gainesville February 3rd through the 5th. The agenda is filled with speakers sharing the latest information on methyl donor nutrition, calf development, lipid nutrition, and much more. Early bird registration goes through January 17. I'm Andy Vance, and you've been listening to Feedstuffs In Focus. Thanks for joining us. If you want to hear more conversations about some of the big issues affecting the livestock, poultry, grain, and feed ingredient industries, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platforms from Apple and Google, or you can check out our website, feedstuffs.com, for future episodes. Until next time, have a great day, and thanks for listening.